Hello and welcome to The Punt, the show in which we look forward to the biggest sporting events of the month with the 42.e brought to you in association with William Hill. Visit dinlouis.net on how to gamble responsibly. My own name is Gavin Casey and this month in February we're looking forward to the Super Bowl and a little bit of Six Nations later on as well. But starting with the American Oval Bowl, I'm delighted to be joined by our former colleague and reformed journalist, Stephen O'Rourke. Steve, how are things on your end? Well, thanks. Reformed journalist is the nicest thing anyone said about me this week. <laughs> Let's continue in that vein. Delighted to be joined also by lead NFL analyst with Pro Football Focus, Sam Monson, another Irish NFL great. Sam, how are things on your end? Where, whereabouts in the world are you actually at the moment, Sam? Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, PFF HQ is Cincinnati, thanks to uh, Chris Collinsworth being kind of based here since his uh, NFL career. Nice. Okay. Uh, can I get some sort of a hype level off you, Sam, for this Super Bowl? You've seen enough of them over the years. How excited are you on a personal level for this one? Tampa Bay Bucks and Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah, really excited. I mean, the storylines in this Super Bowl kind of speak for themselves. You've got the the GOAT, Tom Brady, the, the greatest of all time, the best quarterback to ever do it, with a chance to, you know, he's playing with house money. He's a, He's got a chance to push his legacy, not just to cement the greatest of all time status, but to push it into kind of mythical proportions of, you know, Michael Jordan. And when people look back, it will always be stories of how Brady won anytime he wanted to, never lost a game, all that kind of stuff against you know, the young pretender, a guy in Patrick Mahomes, who people think has a realistic shot to chase down Brady to, you know, uh, set out his own dynasty and, and create this Tampa Bay Buccaneers or this uh, Kansas City Chiefs team that can rival what we've just seen with the New England Patriots for the past 20 years. So I think it's a really fun Super Bowl. Yeah, there does seem to be this kind of generational crossroads vibe to this one, Steve. We've seen memes flying around of adult gold and baby gold. And uh, I guess this could be a changing of the guard or it could be a continuation of this insane legacy that Brady has already left for himself and Mahomes might have to wait before building that kind of dynasty. But if I was to have said to you at the start of the season, to focus on Brady to begin with, that Tom Brady would be back in a Super Bowl with this Tampa Bay Bucks team based on what we've seen of them in previous years and based on the fact that Brady is also uh, 43 now, literally in his mid-40s. Uh, how surprised would you have been or or was this actually in a relative sense what you kind of expected Brady to do in Tampa Bay to have the impact uh, in which they're back in a Super Bowl for the first time in nearly two decades? Um, I'm not surprised they're back. I thought they were one of the top kind of three or four teams in the NFC. I think the NFC in general is slightly weaker than the AFC. So they had more of a chance of kind of of getting there. I honestly thought the Saints would be the team playing in the Super Bowl, but you know, Drew Brees fell off the cliff. We kind of expect quarterbacks over the age of 40 to 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 fall off. And and Brady has just kept trucking on. Like I mean, you were talking about the memes about the, the, the age difference. Like to me the most amazing stat of all this is is that uh, Byron Leftwich, uh, Tom Brady's offensive coordinator, was a sophomore in college when Tom Brady started in the NFL. And now he's the offensive coordinator of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, having graduated college, played professional football, uh, retired and become a coach, and Brady is still going. So it kind of tells you, uh, you know, the longevity of this career. But I think they had a great defense anyway. So he was building on, well, not necessarily a great defense, but they had a good enough defense. And he was building on that by, you know, the offense was okay last year. It just happened that James Winston threw as many interceptions as he did touchdowns. You know, if you scale back those interceptions, they become a much better offensive team as well. 
So no, I'm not surprised. I think it's the manner in which merging Brady's style of play, which has always been kind of dink and dunk, taking the short passes, with Bruce Arians' offensive philosophy, which has always been get the ball deep as quickly as possible. That's been the most interesting thing to see. And it did take a while, but they've got there. Yeah, there was probably a little bit of a complication uh, when we saw Brady go deep a few times towards the end of uh, their last game uh, against the Green Bay Sam. And it's an interesting one. Another Boston sporting great, Mickey Ward, I remember talking about his third fight with Arturo Gabby and he felt himself getting old between rounds. And there were probably moments during this season in which it felt as though Tom Brady might have been at the precipice of that cliff that we've seen Drew Brees at uh, over the course of the season. And yet he in the next game or even the next quarter, he's reminded us of how great he truly is and don't quite count him out yet. But were there concerns for you in the second half of that Packers game or was it just a kind of a minor blip? Do you, do you expect Brady to sort of write the record again off the back of that game? Yeah, I, I don't think there was, cons- I don't think were there are any concerns right now that Brady is ever going to look old. You know, I think that's the thing is that there's no signs of that. He looks like he did when he was 25 years old um, and has all season long. The only difference is he's playing in that offense, as Steve talked about, that it is a high risk, aggressive, deep down the field uh, passing attack. And sometimes like those are low percentage plays and sometimes they don't go your way. It breaks against you. And when that happens, you're going to look bad. But when you look at Brady, there was a period during the season where his uh, numbers on the deep ball were terrible. And people were saying, you know, is Brady done? Why can't he throw the deep pass anymore? Is this thing going to work? And then eventually he came out of that and his numbers on the deep ball have been good. And, you know, the deep pass to Scotty Miller against the Packers just before halftime, like those are the plays that they've been living on in the last couple of weeks. So I think really the amazing thing about Brady is when you look at him play now, there are no signs that he's reaching the end. There isn't, you know, Peyton Manning at the very end of his career for the last sort of year and a half looked like a guy who was physically done, but he was still smart enough that he was able to get by and play at a pretty high level. Drew Brees all this season has been getting by in the same way. His arm has been shot, but he's still one of the smartest quarterbacks to ever play and one of the most accurate. And he can still put the ball where it needs to go. It's just going to take a while to get there. Brady's arm looks fine. It looks the same as it did all the way through his career. He's having an ending that's more like Brett Favre, where, you know, Favre didn't physically decline in terms of arm strength or, or all those kinds of things. Brett Favre is like 50-something, could probably roll out there right now and have a top 10 NFL arm. What happened to him is he just started to break. You know, when he took a hit at the age of 41, 42 things started to break on the man that wouldn't when he was in his 30s. And Brett Favre played with a style that took a lot of hits. Brady doesn't, though. Brady doesn't take many hits at all. And therefore, if that's the thing that's sort of reaching the end for Brady, we might not know about it for a while. So even during this week, he's been talking about, you know, playing beyond 45. And when you watch him play, there's nothing to say that he can, which is just madness. It is insanity, Stephen. We need to flip it as well here and, and talk about the potential generational talent, I would say undoubted generational talent that he, he faces in his opposite number, so to speak, this weekend. And I suppose for the Chiefs, it's not only about Patrick Mahomes. I think even a sort of a casual observer of the sport knows who Patrick Mahomes is at this point. He has that kind of cultural transcendence that maybe a Steph Curry had a couple of years ago with the Warriors and so on. But this Chiefs offense has been a joy to watch as a kind of a total package as well. They're, they're talking about it as a three-headed offense 
with good reason. And really, apart from your Raiders, like I can't think of other teams who've uh, <laughs> who've managed it at all well over the course of the season. So from the Bucks' point of view, we know their defense is strong. How do they stop this three-headed monster in the Chiefs, in Mahomes, Kelsey, and Hill? If I could answer that question with confidence, I would be earning a lot more money than, than I'm earning right now, I think. Uh, it, but like I think you're right to mention the Raiders. I mean, the Raiders' defense is, you know, it's a tire fire. It's, it's horrific, and it was most of the season. But what they did really interestingly against the Chiefs was they showed a certain defensive look in the first half and showed the same in the second half, but actually ran different concepts. And Mahomes got confused. Travis Kelsey got confused. There was one play in particular. It looked as if the Raiders had set up with two high safeties. And so uh, Mahomes was expecting Kelsey to go deep. Kelsey saw the safety drop down into the box. So it was actually a different coverage and sat in the middle of the field. And Mahomes overthrew him and it nearly led to a pick. It was stuff like that. It was, And that's that's really how the books are going to have to stop them. It's it, it, like there's an element of showing one thing and doing another. And the, 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 the most interesting part for me, I think, is that the books are going to have to get away from what Todd Bowles does really well, which is blitzing, because Patrick Mahomes just eats the blitz. Like this this season, I think the blitz average or the, the books average blitz is on 44% of possessions. They dropped that to 17 against the Chiefs, uh, I think, in the, the first game. And Mahomes still shoot them up. So it has to drop even lower again. And that that's going to be interesting, I think. Because, like you said, if if Tyreek Hill, who did all the damage against the Bucs in the first game, doesn't beat you, as we saw with Travis Kelsey against the Bills, he just, he's just an extra receiver. So he's going to beat you. So it's really difficult. I think you're just... There's an element of hope, uh, I think, when you go into a game against Patrick Mahomes. Uh, obviously, there's there's a huge amount of prep and coaching. And it's, it's, it is easier to play a team a second time. Um, but I do think if... Patrick Holmes can scramble if Tyreek Hill can can you know make broken plays, the Chiefs are going to win this relatively comfortably. I would think that's where everyone needs to, in their coverage, make sure you don't let Hill get that space on you. Make sure you don't let uh, Kelsey drop into the zone. So, but there's just so many ways through the air the Chiefs can beat you. You, it it's just going to be really really tough. Sam, there is a sense of inevitability about them when they get rolling, and they're rolling more often than they aren't. Like, uh, I don't know why I keep bringing up memes, but there, there is that sort of Thanos feel to them. I am inevitable, and there's not really much you can do to stop them. Well, we've seen evidence of that throughout the season, but have you seen, aside from the Raiders, teams who have shown pictures or concepts that uh, the Chiefs in particular have struggled with, or... Is it more a case of having to depend on them having an off day and, and maybe Mahomes just throws a ball six inches too high? You, you get a pick in the first half that changes the trajectory of the game. That, I think, is definitely, you know, something that can always happen is we've seen. I, I think this happens in every game or but because, you know, if it's Jacksonville versus the Jets in week two, nobody cares. But in the playoffs, you suddenly notice that every weird fumble or bounce of a ball or muff punt and you're like, wow, these things are in all the preparation and all the talk we do heading into a game to predict what's going to happen. And then a guy dropping a punt is what this determines whether the, the game is going to go one way or the other. Um, you, you have to hope that those things break in your direction if you're facing the chiefs. But I, I think Mahomes and that chiefs offense has reached this sort of transcendent point where I don't know what the game plan is supposed to be, you know, with, with Tom Brady, you at least know what you're supposed to do against him, whether or not, 
you can achieve it. Whether or not he's going to beat you anyway because he's one of the greatest to ever play is another matter. But you at least know what the game plan should be. Mahomes, I don't think you do anymore. And I think that's also true with Aaron Rodgers when he's playing at his best and, you know, a couple of players here and there. Mahomes just has the answers. And we've seen in particular the blitz is a great point because if you come after him with that, a perfect NFL passer rating is 158.3. Against the blitz this season, Mahomes has a passer rating of 135.9. So he's almost got a perfect passer rating when you blitz him. And yet being aggressive and coming after him might still be your best bet because, you know, maybe he does carve you up consistently, but that's what's going to create one turnover or one play that bounces in your direction. But, you know, the Ravens are a great example of a team that blitzes a lot. They're very creative on the back end um, in terms of they, they disguise and they cover up the blitz very well and sort of put players where you typically want to go uh, off the back of the blitz. And yet it was like Mahomes and the Chiefs just had the playbook. It was like they knew where the Bravens were going to put bodies and therefore knew where to target instead. It, it's incredibly difficult to figure out a way to stop this offense. And, you know, certainly we saw the first time they played, like the Bucks had no idea in the first quarter. Tyreek Hill lit them up for over 200 yards. I'm sure they'll have learned from that. They made adjustments in that game. But this might be a game where you just sort of go out there from a defensive game plan and say, we're going to make like Nicole Hardman beat us, right? We're going to double team Travis Kelsey and Tyree kill, make sure that there's bracket coverage on both those guys, every single play. And if that means leaving like Clyde Edwards, Hilaire literally unblocked or uncovered out of the backfield, it's a risk worth taking, you know? And, and again, it's not like that's a sound strategy either. Like you're, you're literally advocating leaving, you know, players basically ignored out of the backfield because it's the lesser of two evils. And I'm pretty sure the Chiefs are one of those teams that are patient enough that if that's what you're going to give them, they're happy to throw the ball in that direction all day as well. But I think it's still a better option than just letting them win with plan A. <laughs> we know, Steve, that uh, Andy Reid has more than one plan as well as the problem. And, and if plan A isn't going to script per se, uh, he has plan, it's not even plan A, B, C and D. It's like Plan A1, A2, A3, B1, B2, B3. And there are so many ways in which this team can beat you. We've seen read call plays even in the playoffs alone uh, where it kind of boggles the mind, like probably the courage of the man in many ways. It, it, but it also speaks to the confidence he has in this team. Speaking about him in a kind of an overall context, if he was to win back-to-back -back Super Bowls, not to mention two Super Bowls, uh, where does he stand in the kind of greatest of all time rankings? I know it's an American obsession, obviously, to like talk about who is the best. But when you consider, I think Steelers won back and back twice in the 70s. Patriots and Brady were the last to do it in 2003, 2004. Uh, I think only 12 teams in NFL history have been in back-to-back -back Super Bowls alone. So for him to do it now, uh, where does that put him in that kind of conversation with Belichick and so on? Well, when you look at the... the head coaches who've won two, just two Super Bowls, the back-to-backs, Vince Lombardi and Don Shula are, are, you know, they're the kind of names he's putting himself into a uh, conversation with. Um, I think you're, I think when you're a coach as tenured as, as Andy Reid is, you can afford to be aggressive. You're not a new guy who is worried about their job six months down the line. Like Andy Reid has made his career. He has made his legacy almost. So, you know, uh, Sam talked earlier on about Tom Brady playing with house money. To a certain extent, Andy Reid is as well. Um, and I think, 
what I like about him is that, you know, he plays, it's it's such a, it feels like a cliche, but it's not. There's a lot of coaches who coach not to lose. Um, but Andy Reid is not one of those. He coaches to win and he, he puts his team in position where they're the aggressor. And if you're the aggressor, you know, you, you cover boxing, you know, to a much greater extent than I do. Like if you're on the front foot, you've got an advantage through the fight. And it's the same in it. It's the same. If the other team is constantly reacting to you, then you're doing something well. But in terms of his overall legacy, I, in terms of offensive-minded coaches, it puts him right up there. I think in the conversation. I mean, we all we 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 think of Belichick, but we think of him as a defensive coach, uh, even to an extent the likes of Lombardi, and that we think is Bill Walsh is probably up there in terms of offense as well. So he really is in that conversation. But I don't think he even has to win to be in that conversation. I think his coaching tree speaks for you know how successful that has been. Speaks to the type of coach he is. And we probably will look back at this era and say, because Belichick was winning all those titles, we probably didn't give Reid enough credit. And I'm glad to see him actually winning titles at the back end of it to kind of, that he does get that acknowledgement. And in many ways, Sam, it it might be a pointless conversation and it might be kind of just an obsession to to rank people and teams and so on in in terms of (laughs) legacy. But with... uh, with somebody like Reed, and, and maybe Steve touches upon it there, it's more about just appreciating him for what he is. And like what I was going to ask you was, even in relation to somebody like Belichick, who we've seen uh, become a serial winner uh, to an unbelievable extent, he is one of the greatest coaches of all time in all sport. What does what is it that Reed does that sort of sets him apart, even from his peers, in how he coaches, uh, in how he's perceived by players, media over there, and so on? Like because it does it does feel as if there is a kind of a I don't know. A, a goodwill towards him, like maybe more of a, a gooey sort of feeling than it would be to someone like Belichick, who was that little bit more standoff. I think there's there's a degree of validation, right? Like I think everybody is happy that finally Andy Reid is getting the Super Bowl and potentially Super Bowls that sort of validates what everybody already knew, which is that he was this great coach. He was one of the best offensive minds that the game's ever had. But what I think what we're seeing is how dependent great coaches are on getting a great quarterback. And if you don't have one, you can be amazing, but you're probably never going to get all the way over the line, particularly not if somebody else has one at the same time, you know, and we're seeing that now with Bill Belichick. He had Tom Brady for 20 years and therefore they won six Super Bowls Um, and a bunch of other people who could have won, should have won Super Bowls didn't because Bill Belichick and the Patriots were standing in the way every single time. And that, what happened to Andy Reid. You know, he got that Philadelphia team to three NFC championship games on the bounce. They were in the Super Bowl. They were a fantastic team. Couldn't get over the line because Brady and Belichick were in the way. And you know, we've seen Andy Reid elevate the play of a bunch of quarterbacks down the years. You know, Andy Reid turned Alex Smith into a high-end quarterback who led the league in passer rating and had the Chiefs going to the playoffs. But then suddenly he stumbles into a, a Patrick Mahomes. And now you get to see what it's really capable of and all the things that they're doing. And he gets to like dig all the way down into the bag of tricks and just bring out anything he likes because Mahomes is good enough to get it done. And I think there is that sort of warm feeling because I think people are happy to see the guy succeed this way. Like he spent, you know, 20 years toiling away with a bunch of quarterbacks that were never quite at this standard. And, you know, Donovan McNabb would have been the the best of the group, but even, in McNabb's heyday, he had a, a bunch of detractors versus, you know, the, the great quarterbacks of that time. So 
you know, Reed finally gets Mahomes. And when he does, it's, it's another three, you know, back-to-back AFC championship games and potentially uh, repeat Super Bowl champions. And Steve, let, let's talk about Belichick then, right? I know he's not involved this weekend, but it actually has potential implications for his legacy. I guess, in a way, like, like Sam said with Reed, like it, it, that legacy is kind of already set. Or sorry, you, you said it about Reed yourself. The legacy is kind of already established. But it would be an interesting, um, I don't know, like branch from this story. If Brady goes to the Bucks, wins the Super Bowl in his first year there during a season in which the Pats are pretty poor without him, uh, to put it lightly. And particularly when you consider, like Belichick didn't bring in uh, – Lane Gabbert as quarterback. He had Cam Newton, who was MVP only a number of years ago. Okay, he might be sort of past his best, or at least he's been perpetually out of form for a while. But this was an established quarterback that he brought in, and they ultimately had a, a really poor season. Yeah, I, I can distinctly remember the day that, that, that Cam Newton signed for the Patriots, and Twitter was basically, oh, we've let the Patriots win the AFC again, because everyone just assumed that, you know, Belichick was going to work his magic, uh, and Josh McDaniels is obviously there as well. Yeah, I, I think Sam's right though. Like it, it, it is a case of it's one you need both. You need a great quarterback with a great coach. Like you can have a brilliant quarterback, the coach isn't up to scratch, then you're wasting that talent. Um, and we probably see that far more often than than than, than we see the inverse. Um, but I think in terms of I think it's an interesting one because I do think that there is very much the narrative that Brady and Belichick basically put up with each other i didn't personally really get on with each other now sometimes that could be a media construct or whatever like anything like they had a functional winning relationship we don't all get on with all our co-workers every time but if we do our jobs right we can achieve stuff and that was kind of the the the, the patriot way so to speak i suppose was let's just let's just win this let's go that's why brady took those pay cuts so he could hire you know get all those um weapons around him and things like that so for me, I don't think it tarnishes Belichick's legacy at all if Brady goes and, and, and wins the Super Bowl. But I do think it enhances the, the value people put on Brady's part of that. Because you know, people talk about uh, Tom Brady being a, a system QB. That's one of the slights against him. Spoiler, all QBs are system QBs. I mean, if, if, if Patrick Mahomes doesn't have Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey... You know, if he has Jason Witten and uh, you know any any unnamed white receiver there instead as his primary weapons, he's a very different Patrick Mahomes. So it all kind of meshes together. But I think for Brady and for t- the, the TV12 program, I think to say that look, we went to a new team, new conference, we still got there and we still won it. You know, it's a nice kind of way to to kind of put a bow on the end of that relationship with Belichick. Yeah, and also, like, what's the system if you're if you're Brady? I mean, they've ran like half a dozen different systems in in just in new england during his time there okay they were all functionally strictly speaking the same sort of um names the same brand but that thing evolved from being you know a a deep passing attack to being a two tight end system to being a nothing but underneath passing like brady if he's a system quarterback it's a system that has had multiple different iterations all of which he's been able to execute well so that was always I think, you know, an off-base criticism of him by people. Yeah. Steve mentions it would be a nice way to put a bow on a relationship, Sam. To me, it would be to absolutely take the piss out of this league and the sport for Brady <laughs> to just switch teams and within one season at the age of 43 now, uh, lead them to Super 
meaningful success when you consider they haven't really been in that conversation at all for the last two decades since they last won it. Like that to me is mind-boggling stuff. I, I'm stating the obvious there, but in terms of his own legacy, forget about Belichick, I think it elevates it to the extent that maybe like two more or three more of the Pats would have done. Yeah, and it it is ridiculous. And when you even you look at the way they've done it, I mean, their season was always a sort of two-stage affair, right? Just get to the playoffs however it needs to happen. You're probably not going to win the division. The New Orleans Saints are there. You have to figure out how you mesh this Brady 20 years of the same um, offense and same terminology with what Bruce Arians does for even longer in, in terms of deep passing, very opposite to what Brady's been doing in recent years. That was going to take some time. And with no preseason this year to to do it or to practice it out because of COVID, it, again, it was, it was always going to take some time. And then the second stage was, okay, now you've got to the playoffs. Now just make sure that you've learned the lessons that you accumulated through the regular season so that when somebody throws something at you in the playoffs, it doesn't cause you problems to the point where you're, you're done. You're, you get bounced. You can't afford to lose games anymore. So show that you figured out the problems from when they occurred during the regular season. And they've done that. Um, both of them obviously successful. And then, you know, you ride your luck a little bit against the Packers in the NFC championship game, but to, you know, to even make that game as close as it was and then get a win was an achievement. I thought green Bay would, fairly comfortably win that game, but it, it didn't happen. They were able to make those big key plays at the, at the right time. And that really has been Brady's legacy throughout his career is that he isn't always great and he hasn't always been great. And, you know, you think back to pretty much any Super Bowl he's won, you can point to a play where Brady could have, should have maybe thrown it away and it didn't happen. And then he came back and won it. The, you know, the, um, Atlanta Falcons, the 28-3 game, right? Brady threw the ball directly to a cornerback. I think the very play before the, the ridiculous Julian Edelman catch, there's basically one of those plays in every single Brady Super Bowl. Um, so when people look and say, hey, you know, he wasn't great in the second half. He made some mistakes. There's interceptions. He's always done that. But the thing about Brady is he finds a way to get past those plays and just hang around and be alive right at the death. And that's the play that he does make. And I know they, they relied on a sort of pass interference call, but Brady found that guy. Brady found the guy that was streaking across the, the middle of the field with Kevin King trailing in his wake. And usually when Kevin King's covering it, it's a pretty good place to go with the ball. <laughs> Steve, looking at uh, how this game might play out, and there are so many variables here, it's really hard to uh, put your finger on uh, a potential pattern of the game. But... If we were to use the, the old phrase, uh, offense wins you games, defense wins you championships, is this a type of scenario where, despite the fact that one of the quarterbacks in this game is Tom Brady, it's his team and their defense are probably key to uh, the a potential Bucks victory versus that um, potentially unstoppable Chiefs offense being key to them? Is, is it sort of an offense versus defense type feel to this, or is that simplifying it too far? No, I don't think it's simplifying it too far. I think in terms of DVOA, it's number one offense and number 16 defense versus number three offense and number eight defense in the books, obviously the, the latter, number three and number eight. Uh, I had a look at this because people do say like offense wins games, defense wins championships. And actually defense is still, even though it doesn't seem like it, defense is still winning championships. I think only four times since 2010 uh, have the highest score, have the better offense actually won the game so that's an interesting one now usually it is between the top 
two or three offences. So they are a fairly evening match on that side of the ball. So ultimately, defence does come out on top. I think there's a lot um, that is riding on. Like you said, like Sam mentioned earlier on about you don't like a muff punt could change completely everything we've talked about today. We could go and you know, dive into detail and that changed it. You know, a centre snapping the ball over the head and over the head of the quarterback for safety. All of these things can, can absolutely change it. I think the books win this game if they do what Sam mentioned earlier on, which is bracket Hill and Kelsey, let Clyde, Clyde Edwards and Lair beat you. The Chiefs are not going to win this game on the ground. That is one thing we know for sure. They're certainly not going to win on the ground. They could still win it with short passes to their backs, absolutely, um, or to their lesser receivers like McCall Hardman or whatever. Um, that's a possibility. But I do think there's lots of ways where the books can stay in this game. One of the things the books do really well, I think, on offense is that they leave their tight ends in run blocking. And run running against the Chiefs is always a good strategy. The Raiders had 140, I think, yeah, it was 140 yards on the ground against them in that win. They chewed up 35 minutes on the clock. That's another way to keep uh, to, to help yourself against the, the Chiefs. So if Leonard Fournette has a good game, and I think he's been used so much better in, in, in Tampa than he was in Jacksonville. In Jacksonville, people looked at Leonard Fournette and they thought, okay, we're going to run him up the middle. He doesn't really like doing that. He likes taking the ball and bouncing it outside. That's kind of the way he plays football. And the books are letting him do that. So if he has a big game, the books could very easily win this. Um, but I was talking about, so that, that those tight ends coming in to help with run blocking is obviously beneficial to him because it helps set the edge or whatever. But it also helps free up one-to-one matchups then down the fields for the receivers. For that deep game, we thought that the books tend to throw in as well. So, like, while we do talk about this, you know, transcendent Chiefs offense, there are a lot of ways that the books can still win win this game. But I do think, like, it, it's too it happens too often for it to be just a quirk. This second quarter that the Chiefs and Mahomes tend to have, you know, I think was against the Texans last year where, the, you know, they were 24-0 down and at halftime were 28-4 up. They did similar to the Raiders last year in the second quarter as well, four touchdowns and stuff like that. It happens. They're really, really good in the second quarter. And Tom Brady traditionally has started game Super Bowls very, very slowly. Uh, now, it's obviously a very different team. But that has to be in the back of his head as well about we they're going to score in the second quarter. They're going to score a lot. We need to stay in this game. So I think if anyone's looking for a pattern, be very worried if you're a Tampa fan, if if you don't have 10 or more points on the board by the time the second quarter kicks off, I think. It, the psychology of it is, is fascinating, Sam, because we've spoken here about probably the aura surrounding that Chiefs offense. And there is an element of inevitability, particularly in that second quarter, as Steve says. If you're a defense or if you're the opposition, uh, that there must be subconsciously on some micro level a, a sort of sense that you can't hang with these guys. Whereas they're probably like something similar is true of the box now. The fact that they got over the Packers in the manner in which they did and the fact that they have Brady at QB and lit- literally within his first season, they're at the, the gates of heaven, if you like. Like, they will have this probably unshakable belief in their own ability. And so it's two teams that are probably going in more certain than other teams in previous years have been that they're actually going to win a game. And yeah. that makes for a kind of a fascinating uh, dynamic. Like, that, it okay, mistakes can still happen for sure, but it's it seems or it feels unlikely to me from this juncture that either team here could potentially bottle it, if you know what I mean. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. I don't think you're going to see a team led by Tom Brady ever, you know, bottle it or choke in a, a spectacular fashion on the big stage. And I think Mahomes and the Chiefs are just too good for that to happen. So I think that's definitely true. What's interesting is that there's, you know, the game flow and the way the game sort of develops can always change things as well. But what's weird is that the Chiefs are so good on offense that it almost breaks the kind of pattern for what should happen in that regard. Like if the Bucks get down big early, it's very difficult to see them climbing their way out of that hole. And I think they would know that as well. So if, if Kansas City jumps out to a big lead and, you know, it gets two or three scores in the first or second quarter, I think heads would start to drop on the Bucks sideline because it's just impossible to see you not a, not your offense, you know, getting those points back, but it's impossible to see you stopping the Chiefs long enough for you to, you know, overcome that kind of deficit. But on the other side, if Kansas City gets down big, they're almost happiest in that scenario. Like, remember last year, they were down double-digit points in every single playoff game. Like, putting the Chiefs in a hole is almost the worst thing you can do to them because then they kind of throw off all the conventional things that you're supposed to do on offense and you know run the ball every now and again and be conservative like when they're down by 21 they just go well screw it let's start throwing the ball around this is what we do well and like that's when they're at their most dangerous so if the bucks get down big you can definitely see a way that they start to lose confidence that they can win this game but if the chiefs get down big they almost become more dangerous so it does feel as though as we're speaking and as you guys are making sense of this game in my head. I'm leaning more towards the Chiefs because it feels as though there are just a couple more ways that they can actually win or if there's more going in their favor uh, than the Bucks, marginally, albeit. Can I ask you, Sam, who you think is going to win, how you think they're going to win it? I think margin would probably be futile, but if you want to throw it in there, by all means. <laughs> I do think the Chiefs will win. Um, and you're right. The more you talk it out, the more you come to the conclusion that the Chiefs are just better across the board. They have too many different ways that they can win. There's too much going in their favor for it to go the other way. Um, but, you know, PFF has a, a betting tool that we've got called PFF Greenline that kind of leverages all the PFF data to tell you where the line should be and who should win, all these kinds of things. And PFF actually thinks that the, the Bucks are closer than the Vegas spread. You know, the line, I think, right now, is three points. PFF Green Line has it at two and a half. And I think it is basically because Tampa Bay has a better defense. You know, it's it's the number one offense or the number two offense, sorry, against the number five offense. It's the number one against the number three overall team. But the Bucks have the number two defense by PFF's ELO rankings. And the Chiefs are number 14. So Kansas City's defense is okay, but Tampa Bay's is legitimately good. And I know they got torched the, the last time they played but it is still a thing that could be a differentiator in this game. And if the Bucs are going to win or keep it close and closer than this, uh, the line, they're going to need that defense to do something. Interesting. So I think Chiefs by a hair for Sam. Steve, you've looked at it from, uh, I guess, a betting point of view on this side of the pond as well. Um, you've kind of created a bet, I do believe. But before you get to it, uh, give us your own thoughts, predictions. How's it going to go? I'm actually going to lean the other way. I'm going to lean towards the books because I think the one thing we haven't talked about because it's not sexy to talk about offensive line play is the fact that the Chiefs will be starting two backup tackles in a Super Bowl, which is suboptimal. Uh, and we saw what the, the books did against the, the, the Packers when they had a, a backup tackle in the game. So I think that's going to be a factor that obviously it's not as 
it's not as fun to talk about it as all the other parts of it, but it is something well worth watching. And it's why I think maybe PFF's line is that little bit closer than the overall line as well, because I do think they can take real advantage of that. So I think I think in a relatively high-scoring game, I don't think we see Brady going over 500 yards again, but I see I can see both quarterbacks getting there or thereabouts to the to 350, 400 yards, I think. Um, I think the books by four points, I think. Um, not necessarily driving. I think the Chiefs will drive to win the game, but won't score. Um, that will be the that will be how it will end. That's how confident I am in my prediction. Uh, but in terms of the actual bet, one of the things I, I really like because I think it's it's it touches on everything we've we've spoken about before, which is that Leonard Fournette needs to run the ball, but Tyreek Hill is really hard to stop on the opposite side. So for me, it's it's books to win uh, Leonard Fournette over fifty yards and Tyreek Hill over eighty five receiving yards, and that's thirteen to two. Nice. Nice one. Get on that. Gentlemen, thanks a million. Sam, thanks very much for your time. Enjoy the game. Speak to you soon. Thanks for having me. No problem. Steve, thank you as always. Great to see you. You too. Guys. Enjoy it. Let's, uh, let's hope it's a good one. Hopefully everybody at home enjoys the game. Uh, Predictions-wise, I'm going to go with a draw, I think. Uh, <laughs> enjoy it. Mind yourselves. Now on to rugby at Six Nations time. We're going to spend the next 20 or so minutes chatting to our old friend, Andy Dunn, uh, who we haven't spoken to about rugby in a while. Andy, how are you keeping, first of all? Are you all right? I'm keeping very well. Thanks, Gavin. Yeah. I've, uh, I've enjoy enjoyed somewhat of a uh, rugby hiatus period over the last few months. So I think it was needed. And now feeling refreshed coming into uh, Six Nations, uh, hopefully an exciting Six Nations tournament. May I ask you, if it's not too personal a question, what sparked the hiatus? Because, of course, famously after the World Cup, uh, that was the last time I remember you taking some time out of the game. It, it, it had broken your heart and soul, so to speak, for a while. Yeah, uh, that's exactly what prompted the, the hiatus, the rugby hiatus, is bo uh, boredom. Um, you know, I think a sport that is, I think there are very, there are cerebral minds uh, who look at the game and will always find it. Um, engaging i saw the paul o'connell interview yesterday and said even even when the game appears stagnant and stale he'll find he'll still find it intriguing to try and find the answers as to why um i'm a bit more of a consumer when it comes to it and uh, I've, i found it difficult to sit through some of the 80 minutes that are that are on offer on tv at present so so yeah it's it's been a long old hangover since that world cup but i'm i'm uh, i'm refreshed and i'm in positive mood and enthusiastic hope hopeful for this six nations yeah uh, talk to me about ireland then we'll begin there and get some of the uh, more depressing stuff out of the way i guess before we can uh, speak about your beloved french and this english machine that seems likely to roll on in this year's tournament but because you have uh, taken a hiatus i'm sure you've had the chance to collect your thoughts compose yourself and, and give a kind of a very balanced and fair analysis of what you've seen from andy farrell's men so far uh, even going back as far as, say, the last Six Nations, which was obviously split between spring and autumn, and into the Autumn Nations Cup, where Ireland finished with a, a good performance and finished on a high results-wise, at least. Uh, do you see signs of hope, Andy? Very much, very much so. Um, I think from, from the off, um, the, the positive signs really revolved around the, the selections. I think quite a as as a people will often get analyzed as a at the top level 
where Farrell is, they'll get analysed in in different boxes. You know, are they a are they a good on field coach? Are they a good man manager? Um, if we were to categorise him as a selector, uh, I would say he's a very brave selector. He's um, he's made a lot of new new choices, bold choices, risky choices. Um, he hasn't. He's certainly demonstrated a a willingness to pick people who are not the tried and trusted options, and I think that's to be embraced in Irish rugby. Um, we've, I think, traditionally we've we've been very consistent selectors un, until a crisis happens, and then we we throw everything out, the baby out with the bath water at, at times. That's that's over the last 20, 30 years. I, I'm I'm really referring to, but in certainly towards the latter end of Joe Schmidt's regime, he had quite a settled side. Um, and when Farrell, when Farrell or any coach indeed comes into a new setup, I, I do think there's scope to be brave with selection. I think you get that, you get that grace period, and I'm delighted he took that opportunity to to develop and um, younger new players and, and throw in a few new caps. So that was a real cause for optimism and hope and that that mitigated for me a lot of the um you know there was criticism around performance in those early games particularly i think the scottish game um better performance against wales and obviously a very disrupted and broken up six nations uh and, and obviously the georgia game was heavily criticized but i think we recovered well in the in the latter part of that nation's cup um and played some good positive rugby where where we uh, the attack was was not stunted. It wasn't constantly rook to rook. It wasn't breakdown orientated at all times. Um, and I, I think yeah, there was there was significant cause for enthusiasm um, based at the tail end of last year, based on the latter performances in in the Nations Cup. Yeah, just talking about selection, and I, I'm actually surprised to hear you um, speak so glowingly about say Farrell's. Uh, willingness to experiment or blood new players. There's probably people out there who feel he's been nearly too conservative in that regard. Like when you consider, say, a matchday squad for Wales in the Six Nations opener. Okay, Caelan Doris has since been injured. He would have been only probably one of two new faces starting, like relatively new faces that Farrell has brought through along with Hugo Keenan. And other than that, it kind of feels like the squad for these competitive games, properly competitive games in the Six Nations would be like, you know, the fairly reminiscent of the squad that we saw even in the World Cup in 2019 that we know um, underperformed, underachieved. So, like, do you, is it the case that you feel as though he's sort of bringing through a bit of a conveyor belt beneath that? Uh, guys like Will Connors, for example, who might fill in this weekend, um, more so than the actual starting 15-23? Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's probably an important distinction you've made. Um, I, I still believe his his starting... 15, if we were to play a World Cup tomorrow, is, is not hugely different to what it was two years ago. Um, but what he has done is brought in a significant... No, he's capped a number of new players and given them exposure uh, to international rugby. Again, a, a little bit of a false exposure in that a lot of those players who came in were playing in empty stadiums and didn't probably get that same um, exposure you'd get in front of 50,000 people and the nervousness and, and the, the psychological challenges that come along with those uh, early international games for players. But yes, he's developed, I think, a, an additional level of, of backup. He's developed and he's, he hasn't, it's a work in progress, but he's given those guys an initial impetus 
to join into the squad to um get comfortable in those surroundings but then again he's made a couple of other brave choices a couple of games with jameson gibson park in at nine will connor's selection at seven um a a different selection of peter o'mahony at seven who's obviously very much part of the furniture but playing in a different position and also seemed to be to look like a um a whole different type of player playing at seven at the latter part of the the nation's cup he, he looked far more like the the old uh the charles olivon model of seven or the former uh, great olivier mania i mean oman is not typically compared to those players but perhaps a new lease of life by a positional switch there as well so again in, in terms of selection it's not absolute change but it's sufficient enough change for me to feel optimistic yeah and just what you touched upon uh in relation to ireland's attack specifically people who listen to your poetry uh, with uh, the 42 rugby weekly on other radio shows podcasts and so on will know you do have been critical in the past and you're probably <laughs> Uh, validated in your opinion post-World Cup, as in your opinion prior to the World Cup, uh, was validated during uh, that Ireland were probably a little bit too rock-heavy. Um, uh, maybe the, the attack was it stagnated certainly under Schmidt towards the end, but also that it wasn't economical and that even within the context of the modern game, had it been firing all cylinders, it might not have been enough actually to progress that team. Uh, and we certainly saw no progress really between 2018 and 2019 or even into 2020. So when you mention the fact that they're not quite as uh, adherent or married to that type of an attack, have you seen enough there over the course of Farrell's tenure so far, which is you know a, a year old now and more, to suggest that they are actually moving in the right direction? Or like, would you have expected with, say, Mike Cat's introduction that it might feel a little bit better oiled at this point? Like, because it, only coming into the Wales game, in the Nations Cup, there were probably serious concerns I had across the country about this attack. So was it that Wales game that switched in your mind or is it just more of a general progress? I, I feel we need to give, give patience. I think we see signs that um, there's an encouragement for players to go off script. I think the players are empowered to take a couple more risks. Again, I, I name-checked Peter O'Mahony there and... Um, you know, a memorable offload at, in the in that Welsh game, um, in the Nations Cup, the type of thing he wouldn't ordinarily do, uh, and he he did not seek to do that at any stage, um, other than do his what was his predestined and prescribed job, um, and certainly when we were in that period in that the latter stage of of, of Joe Schmidt's. Uh, tenure, we, we became very adherent to, to um, predictable type rugby and, and avoidance of mistakes. So the challenge when a new boss comes in like Farrell and he's got to put his own imprint on, on the style we play is that in order to, to bring in change, does he, does he fundamentally change everything? And have we seen enough change or does he do it bit by bit? And I think he's chosen the safer option there. He'll try and implement it bit by bit. But there were, let's be frank, there were good parts to the Irish squad under a five-year, six-year Joe Schmidt regime. We had we had a grand slam, two championships, and a lot of a lot of experienced, talented players. So I think if Farrell is going to try and introduce change, he's trying to do it in a in a 
incremental way. Um, you know, if we're, if we're to compare how teams might change in the past, I know Argentina after the 2011 World Cup um, fundamentally changed how they were going to play and, and to their own detriment. I mean, they went out and lost 78-12 against uh, South Africa down in Durban. But they were fully committed to playing a, a offload game where, whenever, wherever possible on the field. And that's what happens in international rugby when you make root and branch changes. Is you, you know somewhere early on you get a hiding or two, and you either you either stick with it and persist, which Argentina did, and you reap the rewards. Three four years later, the results got better gradually. They um, they they earned patience from a public uh, from a public forum. People people started to become more forgiving. And lo and behold, the 2015 World Cup, they tore us apart through offloads. Um, we, we tend not to manage change like that. We don't seem to look four years ahead. Um, we don't look at, uh, despite all our protestations about not performing at World Cups, I think if you want to perform at a World Cup, you've got to plan three to four years in advance and you've got to take some pain in, in, around your performances. And if I see some green shoots around the offload game um, a bit more a bit less structure in our attack um, I'm, I'm on board with that I, I think it's a good it's a good start so you reckon the change on the parallel will be kind of more incremental but when we're talking about a potential four-year plan for a world cup for example do south africa the current world champions not sort of tear that script up but maybe the the idea of planning for four years is Nearly what dug us into that hole last time around, in that we were too married to a plan, whereas Razi Rasmus took charge of the Springboks in the middle of a World Cup cycle and led them to World Cup glory. Or is it the case that maybe when Razi came in, he took a punt and it wasn't so much incremental change he was looking for? He absolutely tore up the, uh, the, the plans of his predecessor and just did his own thing, took a punt. Might have gone horribly wrong, it just worked out. Yeah, well, like you, you, I suppose you've given different examples. There are ma- there are many variables. I think the only the consistent um, the consistency I see in in Irish approaches to World Cups is that we we don't develop style in our play. We don't change style in our play. Is we we work on, and this is this comes from IRFU level um, board level. I think management where they insist that. The Six Nations is the biggest revenue generator, and therefore we need to win in order to maintain momentum, in order to um, keep Irish rugby at you know front forefront of people's mindsets. And so there's a huge amount of pressure put on the Irish coaches to win the next game. And I I think people look at the Six Nations in the Northern Hemisphere as a the be all and end all from year in year out. We tear each other to shreds. And then you just arrive at the World Cup and you haven't developed any any ability to change your style, any ability to be versatile, to to have we can play multiple ways in the same match. You know, we look at we look at a lot of the Premier League football teams now, and there's a fluency to to how they play or adapt. You see significant changes in formation at half time based on what the opposition are doing. And I think that rigidity in rugby hasn't helped the Irish approach. And then when we come to a World Cup, we become, as dare I say, predictable again. 
what I'm seeing in those initial games under Farrell is not polished, far from the finished article, but slightly less predictable in attack. And I, I'm something I absolutely am enthusiastic about. We'll wrap back around to see what you make of Ireland and France in the tournament, but let's talk about France and England to begin with. And might start with England, given they are reigning champions, given they do seem to be uh, the preeminent force in the Northern Hemisphere, despite the fact that the French do appear to be coming. Um, I don't know, with, with England, it's an interesting one, Andy. Like, if you look back on even their last two defeats that I can think of off the top of my head, France and last year's Six Nations would, would indicate that they are in some ways beatable. Uh, I think the World Cup final against South Africa has an enormous caveat in the fact that they had a disaster with injury at front row and South Africa basically picked them apart at the scrum and built from there. So I, I think you can throw an asterisk next to that one. The French one was more of kind of a nip and tuck, you know, mano a mano sort of battle that the French came out on top of. But given what we've seen of England and the way Eddie Jones has uh, implemented a attacking variety, kicking variety specifically as well, and, and that's probably transformed England's ability to attack. Uh, and also the fact that they now are almost married to a kicking game, if you like. like Jones seems in, absolutely insistent, even against Georgia, when they probably could have racked up 80 or 90 points that they played off the cuff. They stuck to what Jones believes would be a game plan that would beat better teams. It was so similar as well in that Italy game in Rome in the Six Nations. But it's working for them, and it seems difficult to stop. It does feel as though they're a more complete team and even a more rounded team, even if they don't show it now than they were, say, in the World Cup or even actually at the start of last year's Six Nations. And with that in mind, can they even be stopped? Because they do feel kind of inconquerable at the moment. Yeah, I think um, Eddie Jones is a... Is a he, likes, he likes to play chess with, with the media, with his own players, with oppositions he like he likes to uh throw a grenade in on match week and you know he generally likes to stir it up um but i think a lot of that is 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 effectively um a facade to 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 distract away from what what he's very very good at is i think he is he is very flexible in terms of his approach i think he he can absolutely build a side which he's done that seems like it has this juggernaut type um, forward pack. But similarly, he's picked, he's been in, in very, very much embraced with and pace in the back line if, if and when they choose to utilize it. And what, what we've seen is um, they, they've slavishly uh, kept on, on to the, the box kicking game and the forward pack game and have been criticized for it. I doubt Eddie Jones gives a hoot about that criticism, but I suspect there's there's a there's an underlying um, willingness or ability to change that entire game plan and do it quickly. I think he's I think he's building different ways to play. I think he's using games as practice games. Um, probably none more so obvious to us than, than than the recent couple of games against Ireland, which really did look like training runouts for the English side in terms of. Let's just work on our defence. Um, and I would not be surprised in any way if, if Eddie Jones was, was looking to achieve that type of outcome from certain games. I think he's, I think he's more versatile in, in terms of how England are going to play than we might believe right now. Based on the last couple of months, 
not not entirely um, reliant on the, the forward juggernaut pack. Um, nonetheless, it's it's a hugely um, fearful presentation for most opposition sides. That that English pack, for my mind, probably the strongest in the world at the moment. Uh, and then a backline that has a very complete look to it in terms of personnel, in terms of what they can get at halfback in midfield and then that pace out wide. And similarly, then he's thrown in, thrown in some young, uncapped players um, into the mix for this Six Nations too. Uh, Paolo Dugway, I think I pronounced the name wrong, come in from Wasps as the top, top premiership scorer this year. So he's also he's prepared to throw young guys in as well. So yeah, that they, they are. They're to me, they're they're compelling viewing. He's um, based on the mind games he plays, based on the approach he's taken in the last couple of World Cups with Japan, and then with with uh, years back, and now with England, and seeing how he likes to build and put pressure on his players and set targets and be vocal and very transparent about those targets. He's an interesting character, and I think um, I think they're building something special there. When you talk about that, uh, those last two Ireland games, and probably more so the most recent one uh, between England and Ireland, and Twickenham being almost like a training run out for England. And when you consider the contentment with which they just absorbed Ireland, particularly in that second half, and um, it felt like almost toying with Ireland despite not having the ball. It was it, there was a really strange vibe to it, and it did feel very. Uh, What's the word like? Um, I, I it it felt very sectional. Like like this was the plan was to like get something out of a game, learnings out of a game, and like the result will look after itself. It's a little bit debilitating, I think, from an Irish point of view to see your team used like that, <laughs> uh, violated in a way. And like I don't know, it, there were there were arguments then like Keith Earls as a, a breakdown the right wing um, might have done better actually might have taken a chance and it, it switches the, the kind of pattern of the game or changes the momentum of the game uh, in that Ireland score and yet it does feel as though England have gears to move up here like that they haven't seen the best of them in, in uh, recent encounters between the two countries so like looking at Ireland looking at England is there even a point in us Ireland looking towards winning a competition here beating England like or are we absolutely deluded in even hoping that's possible this time around well, I think um, well, there's, there's always hope in, in looking at winning the tournament, but I, I don't think it should be our desired outcome. Um, it would be great if it happened. Um, but I would rather see, I mean, if we lost to England but played an entirely different way, I would accept that as progress. I think what I, what I feel like I would find it very difficult to accept that we go in I think that would be the fifth occasion in a row and play England with the same tactics. We, we've tried blunt force trauma four times in a row and came up a distant second four times in a row. Um, we've, we've been physically dominated for 80 minutes four times in a row. And we keep coming back for more as if we're going to magically get stronger than them physically. I, I just don't see it happening. It becomes, it's really a case of, um, it plays into their hands so well. I think we, if we, if we play a 
far more dynamic game. We try and reduce the rook count, for example, by taking risks and more offloads. Yes, we may, we may surrender possession, but it's far better than holding possession for the length of time we've held it and just running into that wall again and again until we're so tired we can barely stand. And that's what we've done in a, in a, that, that I don't think, I, I don't accept that's a, a simplification even, or a gro- people say that's a gross oversimplification. I don't accept it. We've simply picked up the ball and run directly into England's biggest players on repeat, four games in a row, in a bid that will eventually grind them down. And it's, it's, it's just borderline suicide at this stage. I, if, if we see that again, I'd be pretty crestfallen. I think we've got to, you know, we, we saw um, a nice chip kick by, by Billy Burns um, and, and Stockdale running in late on. You know, it was too late at that stage. However, it showed some ingenuity and it, it puts some sense of doubt into that English defence. And we, we have to create doubt against a defence like that. We simply won't barge them over through through persistence, perseverance. Um, I, I just can't see it happening. So that would be far more important um, sign to me that we're, we're on the road to improvement. If we show, if we show that bravery to, to mix it up from a tactical point of view, to take those risks, to surrender possession if needs be, we do not need to hold possession for the game against England. I would, I would prefer to see us have less possession than more, in fact. And uh, at least when we have possession, try and be, try and be a little more cutting and, and take a few risks. Um, you know, an, an interesting way of note, a kind of uh, pattern I've noted is, is we've, we've seemed to got very comfortable hitting our 12 up off scrums, no matter where it happens. Just send the 12 in to the opposition and when the space is at such a premium in the modern game it's the one opportunity you get where the field has opened up and there's there's countless areas of space and if we see our 12 just running into the opposition 10 or 12 in order to set up more rooks off a scrum i think we're going back into suicide mode so um hopefully that that's uh, abandoned that tech tactic you mentioned cat um my cat was a renowned um player for innovation um he's coached he has coached in teams successfully and, and in an innovative way but he's probably coached in teams that also have juggernaut packs now he's in an irish pack that are probably not going to steamroll opposition so he's got to be extra innovative and i hope we can see that yeah any more crash balls in 12 you'll be taking other hiatus i gather uh, we need to chat about. Yeah, I may retire from <laughs> from punditry. Yeah, let's chat about France then and cheer you up. Uh, I'm finished on a high note because, like, it does feel as though this Renaissance under Fabien Galtier is legitimate now at this point. Uh, like you, you mentioned that um, Ireland need to sort of sow doubt in English minds when they meet again this time around. They're the only team against which England would have any doubt is France. They do feel as though they are coming forth. There seems to be actual substance. Uh, beneath this rebirth and yet when we think of the great French teams over the past god like well we're going back two decades like uh, or, or a decade and more since they were last legitimately good but even throughout their history and the the Jouet and the Joie de Vivre which they play um, 
that's actually not so much the case with this French team. They do feel more practical, more pragmatic. They can still be absolutely enjoyable to watch. Don't get me wrong. They kick more ball than anybody else in the Six Nations. So uh, they seem equally content to play without the ball this time around. It's not only about uh, playing with flair. Um, it seems to be more, a little bit more mechanical and more methodical with them this time around. Yes, I think there's a there's a there's a pragmatism um, to to Gauthier that is um, I think is a is a good it's a good antidote for that that French approach that has been ultimately has let them down in the past that uh, that French approach that we all love so much but you don't know what it depends what side of bed they get out of that you know are they going to play and I think he's I think he's a, a cerebral mind he's 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 well known as a when he played as a brilliant tactician and i think he's brought that into to the french approach where it's it's simply not good enough to just give it a shot from be as unpredictable as you like and uh, and if you know if you have a good day you beat the all blacks as they often have but on a bad day they can lose to a poor scottish side or you know struggle against an italian side i think they're they're building a squad now. As if we compare um, other sides, you, you mentioned obviously England, and we talked at length about England. You're, we're looking at the next couple of years, getting back to that that rivalry that um, maybe we saw from about eighty seven to about ninety four, nineteen eighty seven to about ninety four, where England and France were 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 by a distance the two best sides in the Six Nations, and just served up year on year these awesome encounters now they were they were punctuated by violence at that stage and uh back and that made it all the more entertaining that's not going to happen anymore but um but i think we're seeing two sides that are probably going to be at the the uh the top of the six nations for the next couple of seasons and um two sides that will challenge each other we, we saw french almost the second string french side um robbed at the death against England in their last game and it showed, again that was a warning sign that how much depth they have in that French squad um, but, but I think overall that, that pragmatism that we mentioned that Galtier has uh, around, around playing similar styles to others um, and learning how to do that well that's okay uh, in the French circumstance because they've always got the the uh, escape clause that that run out the back door and do no do what nobody expects. They do that better than everyone. But I think he's bringing that pragmatism in, um, and he's also got in in Antoine Dupont, arguably the best scrum half in the world. And he's he's um, alongside his captain in in Olivon. They've got some some brilliant on field marshals. And uh, again, that's probably not something that's always been synonymous with French rugby is who's who's directing things on the field at times it looks like nobody is and that's their threat but uh, they seem to have that hierarchy of power developed on the field now where they've got clear direction and leadership from players in live situations and I think that's coming down from the top through Galtier through Dupont through Olivon um, and, and making them a, a fearsome prospect. That actually is the frightening part of this is the fact that if they can play like everybody else, they have the depth, they have the level of talent that would dictate that they're better than most, uh, if not everybody else. As you mentioned, that in the game, <clears throat> excuse me, 
in the Nations Cup. France going with a second string uh, 23, effectively, and nearly rolling England over, probably should have. You mentioned the likes of Dupont. We know he's kind of incomparable, really, in the world game at the moment. But if you have a team who can play fundamentally sound rugby with the individuals that they have, and you also have that added string to your bow of the French sort of DNA and an ability to switch it on in key moments, uh, it makes it a frightening prospect, not just for the next couple of seasons, but when you look at the age profile of that squad, uh, potentially for you know a decade, dare I say it, and it does feel as though maybe England and France are beginning to pull away almost um, a mirror image of what's happening actually in the women's Six Nations, where at the risk of, of sounding overdramatic, you could be potentially looking at a kind of a two-tier competition, England and France vying for the championships, as you say, and the rest of us just scrapping for maybe an off year for both of them. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I hope that's not the case, but um, and I, I don't think the I don't think the gap will widen to that extent. I, I don't think it's going to be so divergent. I, I do think there's a gap, and I think it's up to the to Wales, Scotland, Ireland um, to 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 get closer, and they'll have to be a little more imaginative in how they do that. I think what we see is that in terms of the best overall squads the greatest strength and depth um, really the greatest ability is clearly lies within the French and English squads. What is uh, daunting about the French is that they've, they've the age profile of that squad and the fact that their next world cup is at home. And they're, they I think very, very clearly have, have, have looked at this as a four year cycle. I think more so than most, they're, they're unapologetic and they're saying we are building towards a home World Cup that we want to win at home. And um, that is a daunting prospect because they have a young, young age profile, but it hasn't overly affected results and it hasn't overly affected performance. So um, a, lot of, a lot of momentum there, I think, possible for them to build in the next few years. And I would be very hopeful while there is that existing gap, I think, between the English, French, and then the other, well, Wales, Ireland, Scotland, and then Italy are, are way off behind. But it's, I think I'd like to see changes and um, imagination in attack from Wales, Scotland, and, and Ireland in order to, to close that gap. I think there's a small gap there, but I don't see it continuously uh, getting bigger and bigger, provided the, the, the Celtic nations are, uh, are prepared to take a few risks. So Andy, bearing all of that in mind, uh, and uh, bearing our concerns in mind regarding potential French slash English dominance, what is a reasonable or what are reasonable expectations for Ireland going into this competition this time around? Like, are we looking for the change to which you allude and a sort of a third place finish that keeps things ticking over a little bit uh, in the middle of a World Cup cycle? Or do you need to see Ireland get a result against either England or France, both of whom were playing at home, albeit? Uh, without the sort of natural advantages of having a crowd there? My, my personal view, preference and my, my view is that, you know, I would accept third with a significantly improved performance um, around our style of play. I think, I think if, we, if we finish third by, by default because we were, you know, we couldn't get near England and France and played, played the same style of rugby, 
um, that hasn't worked in recent years against them. That would be a big disappointment. However, if we, you know, we, we took it to France and England in a very different way, particularly the English game, if we break it up a bit more and play a more unstructured, risky type of game that isn't possession-based um, and still finish third, that would be big progress to me. So the, the end position... Um, of third, it depends on the style of which we play. I mean, well, I you know we we the way the fixtures fall in the Six Nations is always important, and obviously this year we've England and France at home, but we we won't have the home field advantage from from the Irish crowd. So um, that that may uh, take away obviously obviously from from the uh, the challenge for France and England. They're not they're not travelling clearly to to. Uh, boisterous Aviva um, so so this year probably more than ever the way the fixtures have fallen is is not lying in our favour as much as it could um, so the home advantage against England France is usually significant uh, and, and does often lead us to to dream at the start of the Six Nations <laughs> England and France at home and you know a, a a slightly substandard Wales and Scotland away and we'll pick off Italy. Who knows? Maybe we can dare to dream. Um, so ult- ultimately, um, I think improved performances and improved attacking style against England and France at home. Um, and I think, we, I think we're good enough right now to, to go and pick up uh, away wins in Wales, Scotland and Italy. So if we can, uh, who knows, we may, we may sneak into the top two if we pick off an English or French side, um, you know, that'd be great. But I think third is probably my bet, yeah. Yeah, if we sneak one against France, then it's all to play for, potentially going into that last day against England. Overall competition winner, sorry, did you just say, did you just give me that prediction, actually? Uh, no, I think we'll probably finish third. Um, overall competition winners, I'm going to go with England. England, okay, six to five with William Hill for England. France, I think, are five to two, something along those lines. Uh, Ireland are a little bit further out. I'm checking here, seven to two. So, yeah, only a little bit further out. Who knows? Maybe they know something we don't. Andy, thanks a million. Great to speak to you again. Take care, Gav. Enjoy it. And thanks a million to everybody at home as well for tuning in. Dunleary.net on how to gamble responsibly. We will be back next month with the punt. Uh, in the meantime, we'll have the 42 Rugby Weekly with Mary Kinsella and all of the other offerings from 42 membership members of 42.e if you want to sign up there and get all of the extra podcasts and content. Until next time, mind yourself. Take it easy.